This week on New Roots Radio, immigration south of the border. Uh, you can come on to, and live on the ship. Um, anyone can live there from around the world, the same as, I mean, essentially the same status as being on a cruise. People in Charlotte are very nice, but very conservative. We don't see eye to eye. They just take you. They don't ask you. You have American as an experience, and I never heard such something like that in my, you know, two interviews I had. In much of Latin America, the U.S. is known simply as the other side. You might have family members who live on the other side. You yourself might have spent a few years earning dollars on the other side. Or you might actually come from the other side. No, no, I used to tell people in Mexico, I don't. I'm from Canada. In some rural villages where the older folks had never seen a world map, this was too much. How could the other side have another side? No, as far as they were concerned, I was just from the other side. In Canada, we don't see such a deep divide between ourselves and the U.S., even if we're glad to be different where it counts. But how much do we really know about immigration there? Are we truly a more welcoming, open society? Can we learn any lessons from their experience? Let's go south today and find out. We'll talk with an expert about Obama's chances of finally pushing through immigration reform, to the producers of a new documentary about the connection between immigration and Yankee imperialism, to a Silicon Valley startup building a floating office block just outside the U.S. border, and to an Iranian couple who couldn't make it in Canada and up stakes to the other side. But first, some news headlines from the world of immigration and multiculturalism. A much maligned new system for refugee processing takes effect next week. Under the new system, refugees are guaranteed to receive a hearing within a maximum of 60 days. It's even faster for those who come from a select list of countries which the government says are actually safe and usually just send us bogus refugees. They'll be processed within 45 days. On the other hand, they'll be refused access to a new appeal board, which will be created under the new system. At the moment, the average wait time to have a refugee claim processed is about a year and a half. Critics argue that the faster processing times could make it more difficult to gather paperwork to support claims, and that the list of so-called safe countries is discriminatory. Citizenship and Immigration Minister Jason Kenney said, however, that we're spending far too much time and taxpayers' money on bogus claims, and on generous tax-funded health and social benefits for claimants from liberal democracies. Ah, liberal democracy. Gotta love it. In the new year, New Roots Radio will air a series of interviews from both sides of this debate, as well as with a refugee claimant from Hungary whose family is caught in the middle. Myself, I'm feeling grateful to the Canadian government. There's indications that visa requirements for Mexicans may no longer be applied. The requirement was opposed in 2009 after a spike in refugee asylum claimants from Mexico and it effectively split my family because my wife's relations did not have enough money to qualify for a visa. The government is now considering subjecting Mexicans instead to a planned mini-visa to be obtained at the airport. If this comes true, there'll be much rejoicing in the Fox Rodriguez household and a family reunion as soon as, uh, well, we can afford the airfare. The National Post is reporting a sharp increase in the number of Canadians having their citizenship stripped from them. The crackdown on citizenship obtained through false pretenses was announced two years ago, but has only now got into high gear, with the newspaper reporting possibly thousands of former immigrants facing deportation, 
after having their citizenship revoked. In many cases, those people obtain their citizenship using false documentation or fail to reveal criminal convictions. The process is an enormous departure from earlier policy. Since 1947, less than 50 people had had their citizenship revoked. In the U.S., the first immigration bill of Obama's second term has passed the House of Representatives. The Republican-sponsored bill would allow 55,000 foreign students to remain and work in the U.S. after graduating from fields in science, technology, and medicine. The swift passage of the bill, however, may be blocked in the Senate by Obama's own Democratic Party. Although the U.S. tech industry has been crying out for an influx of labor, under the bill, the new visas would replace another set reserved for countries that are typically underrepresented in migration roles, in particular those from African nations. In the House, Democrats accused Republicans of racism for wanting to do away with the so-called diversity visa. Republicans responded by pointing out that many of the highly educated tech workers they want to attract are also from visible minorities. According to a 2006 Statistics Canada report, 40% of skilled worker and business class immigrants abandon this country within the first 10 years of arriving. Many go to the U.S. Why? What's the problem here? Well, New Roots Radio contributor Masa Ali Mardani asked exactly that question of two friends of hers who should know. Amir and Rehani, originally from Iran, bailed on Canada more than a decade ago and moved to sunny North Carolina. When they were back in Toronto this year, they told Masa the decision had been difficult. The interview was recorded in a hotel lobby beside a noisy fountain, which is what you're going to hear in the background. Before we moved, it was so an unknown. I had no idea when I moved here. It could have been as if I moved in Mars. I mean, it could be so, it could be so different from cultural shock was really an understatement. Very normal, mundane thing like going to the bank and get money from ATM was an issue. I had to learn everything. It was exactly like I have taken the airplane and landed on Mars. To me, it was the same. Canada was really unknown country for me. I didn't have any information. I was thinking about a very cold place. We, uh, Toronto, the first impression was not very pleasant for me because um, when we went to, when we left Iran, actually, we went to Paris. So I stayed in, I think, almost a week in Paris and uh, central France. And then we flew to Toronto, so obviously when you come from Paris, it's a kind of, you know, <laughs> I thought that everywhere out of Tehran should be as beautiful as Paris. <laughs> I was an engineer in my country. I was working in one of the best places I could. I went to the best university. I was settled. I moved to United to Canada, and it was like going back to zero. You have to start again to prove yourself. You have to... I could not speak English, so I knew how to speak French, but I did not know how to speak English. And it was very difficult. You know, there is a fine line between being illiterate or just being not knowing the language, but that fine line sometimes is blurry. And I felt like a confident person, but all that confidence gets shattered when you get into a new place that nothing is the same, and you have to start to learn the new things and at the end you learn and you become the same person you were there even better but that time is quite difficult uh, it took probably two two and a half years for me to find a job when I came to 
Canada, and everyone asked me, do you have Canadian experience? And I was just, you know, surprisingly that, you know, now I'm just, you know, I just came here not six months ago. For some person that who comes from another country, uh, as educated as you are, uh, might talk English with accent, funny accents, and don't have, as they say, Canadian experience. It's, it's a very tough country. It's a very tough country. I did not work in Canada, so I don't think it's fair that I give opinion about something I haven't experienced. I got my master's and PhD here, and I even wrote the last chapters in the United States and came for my defense. Here in Canada, all the doors were always open to me. That might have been luck. That might have been just my personal experience. Well, United States for me, no, was not really a choice, you know, basically. I didn't think about, uh, okay, should I stay in Canada or should I go to United States? It was not that, that kind of situation. I lost my job in, uh, I think, 98, end of, end of 98, close to January 99. And uh, that was the last straw for me. She had every reason to, to love Canada because she was working on her thesis, you know, PhD thesis. She was growing and she was uh, having fun but for me it was disaster I, mean, I saw my friends actually driving taxis friends friends I mean electrical engineers you know architects people graduated from really good universities in Iran they could uh, they could you know have a better future I think if they, they went to some other countries when I moved to United States again it was difficult I loved Toronto, I loved Canada, as I still do, but now I am also fond of where I live. It is difficult to compare Toronto to where I live now, which is Charlotte, North Carolina. The reason is that Toronto is so multicultural, so live, mega city, and Charlotte is a quiet city. I came to, to Charlotte and I saw the opportunities really right away. I mean, you can see that people are more acceptable. They are, um, they, they are more, when I say accept, they, they accept you more as a, um, as in a person. You go there, you know, they just, they just take you. I mean, they don't ask you, do you have American as an experience? And I never heard such, something like that in my, you know, two interviews I had. No, none of them asked me, do you have an American experience? So they, they actually know in America that you, you're from Iran, you're from India, you're from wherever. You come to, to the United States, make money and work. So obviously when they have an interview with a you know, Middle Eastern person, they never, you know, bother with these things. They just say, what do you know? Can you do this, or do you have a degree in computer science? Yes, I have. You know, how many years have you worked? This years, okay. You know, a couple of technical questions. You look good. Let's go. And that's it. People in Charlotte are very nice, but very conservative. We don't see eye to eye. They are very, very religious, and I am a non-practicing atheist. It means that I really have no um, set of um, belief. All I have is doubt. So it is difficult. There is no denial. The, the richest country in the world, it has 300 or something million people. It is huge and it is the land of opportunity. I'm not going to deny that. I just think that if they would just go a little bit more for the right, human right of people, 
I, it, for me, it would be fine. I, I don't really think that much about uh, poverty or no, <laughs> because everywhere there is some problem. I mean, I don't uh, think that. Uh, you know, I'm really in front of that idea because I think I think United States is not just a country. Basically, I think it is. I mean, you know, it's not just a land like Charlotte or New York or whatever. I think there is a there was a really no what's it Nobel or a very beautiful idea that you should be free from uh, a lot of things, you know, having your own way, try to grow up. So I, I like I like to be in that, like you know, kind of atmosphere rather than kind of controlled. Uh, everybody should have everything. Everybody should be equal or things like that. Which I don't think it happens anyway. You know, it might you know in some degrees you have it in some countries, but it's not going to be perfect anyway. Even in Canada. Um, I can't say that anybody ever has maltreated me or make me feel bad. This would be unfair if I say that. But I believe that it is very interesting. United States, I talk about my office. If there is a blood drive, there, need, there is a need for certain type of blood or there is generally blood drive. People stand in line to give blood. But when they say that they have to go and bombard the country, that's not a problem. So in my opinion, they truly, at least people I work with, they truly believe that the United States needs to be in different countries and needs to take control and needs to stay the best and the most powerful. Now, I cannot put these things to, two things together, that if there is somebody in the, um, for this charity work, the vice president puts on his dirty clothes and goes and paints the house of a person who doesn't have money, or there is a lineup to give blood, but everybody thinks that going to Iraq without them doing anything, it's acceptable, it's completely okay. In the office, actually, people don't look at you as, you know, person. They look at me as Amir. My name is Amir, of course, in office because it's my official name. So they, they call me Amir and they don't look at my, you know, it was, I was in the worst time in the United States, if you think about that. I mean, I arrived in 1999. And Bin Laden actually 2001 um, attacked the uh, New York you know, towers. And you know the day that it happened, of course everybody was so upset. And nobody, I mean, I never had anyone, I mean, just talks to me differently uh, the same day or after that. They were looking at me as their colleagues. I mean, they knew that I'm not, you know, part of the, you know, Al Qaeda or something like that. So. And. The president of my company came and patted on my shoulder and said, don't worry, we are going to liberate Iran too. And I was thinking, I didn't say anything to him. I was just looking at him. What should I say if I don't need any help? Please don't help Iran. <laughs> I don't want my people get killed.
was Iranian rapper Hitchcast with his single Anjam Vasife. Immigrants like Amir and Rehane head to the U.S. out of personal choice. A new documentary argues that millions of Latinos, however, were forced to come to the U.S. after the U.S. made life intolerable for them back home. Harvest of Empire traces the numerous U.S.-backed assassinations, overthrows, and invasions in Latin American countries, which plunged them into poverty and left their people no option but to flee for their lives, or for employment, straight to the very country that was harming them. The film, based on a book of the same name by reporter Juan Gonzalez, features grueling archival footage and interviews with escapees and their children, now many grown up and successful in mainstream U.S. society. It paints a picture of a country that is brutal towards its neighbors and its immigrants, and yet still full of hope to so many. I was almost seven years old when I came to L.A. to be reunited with my mother because she left Guatemala three or four years before I did. It was a very long trip. It was by bus, it was by car, by walking many, many miles. Going through the southern part of Mexico is one of the toughest parts. When it came to crossing the border, I had to say that the coyote was my father and that my grandmother was my mother. And we were coming to visit the immigration officer asked me, like, what's your mom's name? And I said, Aura. That he asked me for, for my father's name, and I forgot. I forgot his name. Luckily, we were not sent back to Guatemala. We were, we were not able to cross uh, to the US that, that first time um, because of my fault. But my grandmother is a person with a lot of persistence and a lot of tenacity, and she's like, no, we're going to try again. In January 27, 1991, I came to L.A. All I remember is seeing this really big pregnant woman running down the stairs, and I was worried that she was going to fall off the stairs. <laughs> and she lifted me up, and she carried me, and she was kissing me a lot. It was definitely very emotional. I think to some extent I did feel like a stranger. Like, I, I, I think that I'm like, why is this woman hugging me so <laughs> hard? And I was happy, but I was also, I think, to some extent confused of what's really going on. The producers of Harvest of Empire are Wendy Thompson and Eduardo Lopez. New Roots Radio contributor Dan McPeak interviewed them this past October. He asked them what it was about Gonzalez's book which inspired them to make the documentary. When we read the book in 2001, we all realized that back then, a lot of the information, a lot of the rhetoric that was being used about Latinos in certain networks in certain television stations were totally void of facts, of factual information. So Eduardo and I felt that it was very important for us to get to provide a historical context, and that's why we were inspiring to do this film. Now, the, the relations between the United States and some Latin American countries, such, such as Cuba and uh, Venezuela, have been, have been tense uh, uh, over the years. What do you make for, for the, the reasons for those tensions? Um, I think one of the reasons for the tensions is that unbeknownst to most people in the United States and throughout North America, there is a long history of intervention from the United States uh, in Latin America. 
And it happened for different reasons at different times, but it did happen. And so what what occurs is that in all Latin American countries, uh, all those incidents are remembered very well. But unfortunately, since as American citizens, we are rarely told about these situations, we don't know. And so there's a great disconnect between what actually occurred on our behalf in Latin America and what we know that happened in Latin America. So, for example, one of our interviewees, Juno Diaz, his life was completely turned around and changed by the U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic in 1965. Yet as American citizens, we know, very few of us know that there was a U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic in 1965. So, given this murky murky history that many Americans don't know about and you know that affected the the Latinos in in one way or another why is there such still a high volume of Latino immigration to the US because the United States uh, continues to be a beacon of hope for many people for all immigrants who believe in that American dream I travel a lot throughout the world and quite frankly uh, as a Peruvian myself and knowing um, the opportunities that exist in a country like America. You know, in America, everything is possible. And, uh, and I, I, I must say that that's the hope the, 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 and the belief of the American dream that, that keeps driving people, not just from Latin America, but from all over the world to the United States. So there's a there's an election coming up relatively soon uh, in the U.S. and immigration is playing a huge part uh, in the election, um, both as an issue and, and, and as policy. What do you make of the uh, immigration policy of the of the two uh, major candidates? Um, I believe there is a stark contrast in the two approaches to immigration. Uh, on the one hand, with uh, President Barack Obama, there seems to be the hope that immigration reform can be passed, or at least can be considered in a very fair basis. Uh, on the Republican side, unfortunately, there's been a lot of uh, very derogatory rhetoric uh, utilizing discredited terms like illegal aliens and even worse, illegals. Uh, these are terms that have been discredited by all of the uh, Hispanic the uh, Native American, the Asian American, the African American journalism associations. And yet they are being used widely by the presidential candidates themselves, as you saw in the, in the primary debates with the Republican Party. And so when you begin um, a discussion u- utilizing those kinds of terms, it's very troubling for all of us Latinos. So I think there is a very stark contrast between the two approaches to immigration. And going back to Harvest of Empire, I believe one of the approaches really fails to look at the history um, that has occurred between us as the United States and Latin America. Briefly, I wanted to get your thoughts on the uh, what, what happened in, in Arizona with, with that whole debate surrounding the, the immigration law where um, police officers could stop people who looked like immigrants for, for, for any reason. Well, remember that that the same kind of law uh, it now exists in Alabama, um, and it has been attempted in many other states. And so uh, for Latinos, this is an extremely troubling law because basically it's almost legal harassment of the community. And I can tell you that as a person who lives in the Washington metropolitan area, specifically in a place like Montgomery County, 
that votes democratic in a very consistent way, even in those places, what we have found is unbelievable use or misuse not only of the kinds of laws that were passed in Alabama and Arizona, but even more importantly, the President Barack Obama's Secure Communities Program, which allows individual police officers to act as immigration officers. So we have had cases in Montgomery County of women who called the police because of domestic violence situations, and instead of being protected, they're actually reported to the immigration authorities. So this is happening in a more intense way in Arizona and Alabama, where people can just be picked off the street because of what they look like, and the police have the right to question them about why they're here in the United States. Obviously, this creates a very intimidating situation for the people and what we find not only in our area of Washington, D.C., but throughout the country is that one of the impacts of these kinds of laws is that children are living with a great deal of fear, whether their parents are documented or not, because they simply see this level of fear in the community itself. I uh, want to get back to, to the film here. Uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, one of your interviews being Gino Diaz, but you've had a lot of great ones. You had uh, Rigoberta Menchu, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Anthony Romero, uh, Geraldo Rivera, Martin Espada. Um, what was your process like in uh, finding out who you wanted to interview and then getting those people to agree? Well, it was a very organic process because uh, we cover six countries in, in the film. Uh, I'm sorry, seven countries in the film, but in the book there are obviously more countries that we couldn't just talk about because we only had an hour and a half. But uh, for each country, when we looked at Puerto Rico, we said, well, who would be a great representative of the immigrant story and who would be willing to talk to us about that story? So that's when we were able to approach Geraldo Rivera, who is who's very pro-immigration and is a big supporter of immigration, and he, has a, he, he and his family have a rich history. So was the same with Juno Diaz and Rigoberta Menchu. I mean, once we approached them and told them about the book, most of them were very familiar with the book, and they were willing and, and open to tell their story in the film. Um, with, with a lot of documentaries, there, there can be a danger of political slant. We, we see it a lot in uh, the Michael Moore documentaries. Was that a... Was that a, a an idea in your head? Were you trying to avoid making a a, a political film that that takes us that takes a certain side, and were you just trying to tell the story? Yes, we worked very hard on that. It was an issue that we we definitely were very aware of, and uh, for us, the most important thing was to provide the history and the facts, and then we, for people to make their own decisions. Uh, so we've we've we think we've done our best with the film, but it's it's amazing. We had four pre-screenings so far, and it's amazing to see, regardless of which side of the question people are, some feel that we're not so good to a certain side, and the others feel that we're not so good to the other side. So it's been a difficult balance for us, but we try to do our best. What do you hope ultimately people will? take away from this film? Our greatest hope is that the film uh, opens eyes, uh, that the film challenges stereotypes, and that it begins a, a dialogue that should have been uh, started a long time ago about immigrants, 
uh, and about our relationship as the United States to Latin America. Um, unfortunately, so many of our fellow citizens don't know the story. That's why we call the film Harvest of Empire the untold story of Latinos in America, because so many of us don't know the story at all. And so how can we really have an honest opinion about immigration? Because the reality is everybody seems to have an opinion about immigration. But how can you really have an honest, fair opinion about immigration if you don't know any of the history, if you don't know any of the reasons why we really came to the United States? And you can find out more about Harvest of Empire and how people in Canada can view it at www.harvestofempiremovie.com. You're listening to New Roots Radio, a production of Many Worlds Media in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We are, as far as we know, the only national radio program about immigration and multiculturalism in Canada. If you'd like to find out more about the program or listen to past shows, check us out online at www.newrootsradio.com. We also have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash newrootsradio. And if you'd like to send in comments, suggestions, or even, yes, complaints, get in touch at info at newrootsradio.com. There's also opportunities to contribute to the program, and you can write to us about those as well. We'd love to hear from you. Well, as we heard in the news today, immigration is a deeply divisive issue in the U.S. Not surprising when 12 million illegal immigrants reside in the country. For some, they raise the specter of a nation overrun and of resources swamped. Yet businesses say they need immigrants desperately as jobs go unfilled by the native population. When President Obama began his first term of office, he announced grand plans for an immigration reform that would sweep away these problems. He would grant amnesty to some illegal immigrants and let in more people who could help the economy grow, all the while tightening enforcement of immigration laws. He failed in all of this except enforcement. He's back in office with a comfortable mandate. Now, are his chances any better? To find out, New Roots Radio reporter Lillian Cadier-Shaw called up University of California political scientist Luis Discipio. Luis began by telling Lil what went wrong for Obama last term. I think once Obama realized that he wasn't going to get uh, legislative action on immigration reform, he began to look for uh, powers, administrative powers that he had and the Justice Department and the Department of Homeland Security had. Um, his uh, sort of policies during the first term went in two different directions. Um, one was to increase the number of unauthorized immigrants who were being deported uh, by the United States. And the argument that he made here was that uh, immigration reform would not receive popular support or legislative support uh, until there was evidence that the United States could, in fact, control its borders. Uh, so uh, Obama used you know, the administrative power of the Department of Homeland Security uh, to focus uh, deportation efforts on unauthorized immigrants who had passed criminal convictions or outstanding orders of deportation. And his argument there was that, uh, uh, you know, there's a limited amount of enforcement, uh, there are a limited amount of enforcement resources available, and those resources should be focused on uh, immigrants who have, uh, unauthorized immigrants who have, uh, you know, created the most problem for U.S. society. By focusing the enforcement efforts on uh, unauthorized immigrants who had committed crimes or having had outstanding orders of deportation, Obama shifted attention away from workplace raids, which were very unpopular uh, in the business community, and from um, immigrants who might later be eligible for a legalization program. 
uh, particularly you know, those young adults who would be eligible for the DREAM Act. So they became sort of immune from deportation unless they had committed a crime. Uh, the second thing that the second major thing that President Obama did uh, in his first term uh, was to uh, create a temporary legal status for again these young adults who might be eligible for a legalization program down the road um, and that temporary status would not only protect them from deportation which he had already done but also gave them a uh, work eligibility for two years uh, this program was implemented or was announced in uh, June of this year and began to uh, accept applications in September and so far um, you know it, it, applications are still being accepted so we don't have a, a complete count on uh, how many uh, uh, how many people are taking advantage of that program. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Obama's first term was in some ways a disappointment for uh, advocates of immigration reform, uh, but, you know, his, his claim during the campaign, and, and, and uh, you know, I think an accurate one is that uh, with Republicans in the, particularly the House of Representatives, completely unwilling to even entertain the idea of comprehensive reform, uh, he did as, his administration did as much as it could. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about the policy of workplace raids and how Obama has handled deportation. Yeah, under the, well, late in the Bush administration, say beginning around 2006 roughly, um, President Bush, I think, same, came to the, a very similar conclusion as President Obama, and that was it was very unlikely that there was going to be support for comprehensive immigration reform in Congress unless there was more evidence that uh, or enforcement of immigration laws uh, could be successful. So his um, strategy, or the strategy of his administration, uh, was to use sort of very highly publicized raids on large employers, thinking this would get the attention, I think, of, of unauthorized immigrants and other, other sorts of uh, venues. Um, I think the, this, these efforts were determined not to be very successful. They got the attention that I think the Bush administration uh, was interested in, but they proved very unsuccessful at identifying unauthorized immigrants, and they angered, not surprisingly, not just the employers who were raided, but then many other employers around them who were fearful that they would be next or that their workforce would just disappear, you know, when, when these raids took place. So the, the Obama administration sort of refocused the strategy um, not on you know, large, sort of flashy workplace raids, but instead on sort of more street-level police work of identifying individuals who previously sort of come into the scope of the United States government or state governments um, you know, through arrests or other infractions, uh, but had not been deported, and and uh, you know, and focus the, the the enforcement efforts on them. Now, this is harder work because you have to do it almost on an individual individual basis. Uh, but uh, you know, if you look at the numbers of deportations, they did increase. Well, they they held steady between uh, Bush and and Obama, but then have remained throughout the four years of the Obama administration, where you only saw high levels of deportations in the last couple of years of the Bush administration. So the Obama administration actually deported more people than Bush. They're, well, on a year-to-year -year basis, they're comparable. But if you add up the total for the four years of Obama, they are larger than for the eight years, for that matter, of Bush. Obama has come back into office promising comprehensive immigration reform. What do you think its chances are? At the moment, I'm pes pessimistic um, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, as, as important as it is that Speaker Boehner has sort of seen the light and recognizes that there needs to be some movement on this, I'm not sure that his rank and file do. Um, and many of those, you know, rank and file members of, uh, of the Republican caucus, um, you know, have that either ideological or, you know, sort of principled objection to legalization 
and simultaneously the fear of facing primary challenges in the 2014 election. Now, certainly, if the Democrats were to unite behind a bill, uh, the um, you know you'd only need 30 or 40 Republicans to you know to ensure passage in the House. I think that's that's a more achievable goal. The, the dilemma is if the Democrats are providing the majority of the support for the bill, they're going to propose a much more liberal bill than the Republicans would like. So, you know, it's possible it'll just get caught in sort of partisan gridlock. What do you think we might see this term? Well, um, what I would, at a minimum, I'm relatively confident that we'll see some form of the DREAM Act. In other words, a very targeted and very narrow sort of bill, not comprehensive at all, but targeting a very, you know, a, a group around which you can make an argument of deserving, you know, deserving special uh, co- special recognition by the United States. What exactly do Republicans object to in immigration reform? Well, I mean, I think at, at some level, what they fear is that they will be accused of being soft on immigration, and that's that fear of facing a primary challenge. Um, so why do they have, why would they be challenged from the right? Well, I think there's a fear on the part of, you know, many in sort of the Republican base that the culture and society of the United States is changing, and that change works to their disadvantage. And to some degree, we saw that in the results of, of last Tuesday's election. Um, you know, just 39% of uh, non-Hispanic whites uh, voted in favor of a, President Obama's re-election. So 61% voted for, for Governor Romney, despite the fact that 61% of the white vote in the United States went for uh, Governor Romney, uh, President Obama was reelected relatively easily, at least in the Electoral College. So you know that that fear of cultural change and, and and you know a society that's in some ways you know out of their control is legitimate. Uh, so you know I think that that undergirds this 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 fear about um, you know large scale immigration. Um, I think a second thing that you know that some on the Republican side object to, and I, I think this is a more legitimate sort of topic for discussion, but we don't have the, the space in the United States to talk about it, is that the current legal immigration stream, which allows for migration of, you know, one, a million to 1.1 million uh, new immigrants, legal immigrants every year, is weighted towards family reunification. Um, there's a strong preference in, in the current law for the ability of United States citizens and in some cases permanent residents to immigrate their immediate family members, so parents children, particularly minor children and spouses. And those, those family preference immigrate, immigrants you know, make up some, depends on the year, but uh, between 55 and 65% of legal immigrants every year. I think there's a concern among many in U.S. society, and, and maybe a little bit more so on the Republican side, that that balance needs to be altered to create a system that creates more of an incentive for uh, educated, English literate, or English competent uh, immigrants from abroad who don't have immediate family ties to the United States. Um, so the model in some ways would be the Canadian point system um, for a larger share of, of immigrants to the United States. You know, if there were a sort of a rational discussion about immigration in the United States as opposed to this one that's more based on fear, um, I think, you know, that would be a, you know, a topic that should be debated by Congress, but they've never really gotten there because they always get tripped up over questions of legalization and sort of what a path would be for unauthorized immigrants to become legal. This is Dada J from Senegal with number one. Yo, musical love. 
Immigration reform may be held up in the U.S. Senate, but one company in Silicon Valley isn't waiting around. In fact, it plans to make money on the shortage of visas for would-be immigrant entrepreneurs. Blue Seed reckons that if you can't bring immigrants to the valley, take the valley to, well, the sea. The company plans to anchor a boat off the California coast, 
turn the cabins into offices, and lease space to high-tech entrepreneurs that can't get a visa. Here's company spokesman Sam Bagua to explain. So we're going to be positioned 12 miles off the coast of California, which puts you in international waters, which means that the U.S. visa regulations uh, are not applicable there. Uh, you can come on to and live on the ship. Uh, anyone can live there from around the world, the same as, I mean, essentially it'd be the same status as being on a cruise. Now, if you want to come on shore, um, you have to have a business or tourist travel visa, or so-called B-1, B-2 visas, um, which are not trivial to get, but a lot easier than getting a work visa. So you'd have a regular ferry, you'd have regular transport between the boat and, and the mainland? Yeah, yes, we're planning on running the ferry twice or three times a day. Right, but of course, if people come into the U.S., then they have to instantly stop work. Is that right? If you're sitting on the ferry working on your laptop, you have to close it as soon as you cross over that 12-mile boundary, or, or what's the law there? So it'd be sort of the same situation if, again, you're a, you know, you're a high-level executive in working in Toronto, and you're meeting, um, you're going to an industry co- conference in New York. Uh, you could be there, you could meet people, you could talk to people, you could you'd be able to go to, uh, I mean, parties, the kind of social events that you serendipitously meet people at that are really valuable to the community here. You'd be able to do all those things. Well, that's that's interesting. Give us, give, give us an idea of how Silicon Valley works, because I, I would have thought that, you know, it's the most technologically inclined place in the world. And I mean, can't you just have a party where everybody, like, beams <laughs> themselves in through Skype? <laughs> well, well, I... As as you would probably know, know from your experience, it's you, you get to know somebody a lot better when you're able to sit down and, and talk to them than when you're than when you're sort of video conferencing over chat. I mean, it's a lot more clear what, for example, what silence means if you're talking to someone in person and they pause than if you're on the phone. You're like, do they not know the answer to my question? Uh, are they? You know, are they frustrated at me because I'm not understanding something? There's... You're also talking about dealing with people from different cultures. So, I mean, do you find the need for personal communication, face-to-face type communication is even more important in, in this case? I think that's exactly right. I mean, with it's really, it's a, it's really exciting place when you can bring lots of people from different uh, cultural backgrounds together with different approaches to solving problems. If you look at specifically the companies that are in Silicon Valley, many of them were started by immigrant entrepreneurs. If you look at Google, it was co-founded by Sergey Brin, who came here from Russia. I mean, Steve Jobs' biological father uh, was from Lebanon, and like you see a lot of a lot of these things will a, a lot of good things happen when you put people from different cultures. Uh, in the same place and have a productive way for them to work together. And that's exactly what Silicon Valley is. And what you're proposing is to do that same thing, but anchored 12 miles off the uh, California coast. It sounds a little crazy. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first person to have said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, certainly you're not. Um, you know, it, big problems require innovative solutions. Um, the 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 simple and troublesome fact is that there are simply no visas available for startup entrepreneurs. Now we'd love if this was a this problem was solved legislatively, but the unfortunate fact is that in in a highly partisan environment in an election year, that's simply not very likely to happen. Yeah. Is there any sense in which this project is as much protest as it is business venture? This is something that we personally as a team are really passionate about. 
I mean, uh, of, right now our team is four members, um, and of the four of us, all of us are either immigrants to the United States or first generation. Um, my my father grew up in India. Um, my mother was born in Germany, so, and my mother gained U.S. citizenship um, and met my father in, in, in college, and they were dating uh, for a couple of years. Uh, and then my father returned to India to visit his family, and almost when he tried to return to the U.S., the immigration official actually said, no, you, you're not allowed to come back in here, you know, um, after he had spent, you know, seven or eight years already in the United States studying. And and he had to, his way out of the solution was to marry my mother. I mean, this is, immigration is, immigration is something that's very important to all of us personally. One, I mean, we see this as a problem that needs to be solved. And, you know, if, if it so be that Lucy brings um, the issue of immigration and how um, the United States is not doing a great job of attracting high-skilled uh, people from around the world, then we're all really excited about that. You've pitched it as, as being a pretty fun place. I mean, you call it sort of the Googleplex of the sea, right? Sort of styled after the fun, freewheeling atmosphere of uh, the Google offices. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's still a boat, and, and you can't really lead a normal life. Uh, are you worried that it might end up looking more like sort of a sweatshop for cheap immigrant labor? Um, well, it's it's certainly not. And we're people have proposed uh, other models to us. You know, they proposed bringing lots of uh, you know cheap programmers on board and just having them work kind of for existing corporations. But that's that's really not something that we're interested in because we I mean we want this project not only to be Good for the people that are coming on board, but we want this to be good, something that's good for the local, um, that's unambiguously good for the local American environment. And having businesses on board that come and grow and then move on to the American mainland is something that's really going to help the Silicon Valley ecosystem. It's going to, and it's going to create sort of jobs in America, and it's going to do even more um, to overcome worries about immigration. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've kind of seen this in your program, but a lot of people are very concerned about immigrants coming into, um, you know, to whether it be to Canada or to the United States, and and the implications of that. But if 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 Lucy can show that immigrant entrepreneurs can come here and create jobs and um, and help the economy and help people earn a living, that that's going to be something that is very attractive not only to Lucy, not only to the United States, but to immigration in general and the cause of immigration. Okay, last question. This is a mobile. Uh, this is a mobile business incubator. If you find that for some reason conditions aren't right, whether it's the weather or uh, if there's any changes to the law that maybe make things more difficult for you, would you consider coming somewhere else, perhaps the Atlantic coast? Well, um, I, I do appreciate the invitation. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, the Silicon Valley ecosystem is. I mean, well, I mean, well known kind of around the world for its its technological, just for its technological savvy and the environment that has grown up here to support startup businesses. We'd have a really difficult time doing this anywhere else around the world, um, and that that's why we've, we've decided to locate here. Find out more about Blue Seed at blueseed.co. Well, you've been listening to New Roots Radio, a production of Many Worlds Media in Halifax, Nova Scotia. 
We're way out on the East Coast, but we'd like to make this a national program. So if you have suggestions of people we should interview or stories we should cover, or if you'd like to cover them yourself, get in touch. Info at newrootsradio.com. And if you'd like to know more about the program or hear past shows, check us out online at www.newrootsradio.com. The show was written and produced by myself, Conrad Fox. Many thanks go to Adam Shake for our theme song, Rug Rippin'. You can find more of Adam's optimistic world music at sonicturtle.com. Big thanks to our contributors today, Lillianne Kadir-Shaw, Dan McPeak, and Masa Ali Mardani, and to the Multiculturalism and Multimedia Project of the United Nations Association of Canada for paying them. Next week, we'll be going into Immigrants' Kitchens for a taste of home. See you then. <laughs>